The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the pilot episode of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. We'll start off the show with a preamble that will become quite familiar to you as you hopefully listen to future episodes. A nice lawyer once told me that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So I'm glad to get that stuff out of the way. I'm super excited to kick off the show. It's going to be an amazing first few weeks. I have a lot of great guests for you uh, coming up uh, in, in the pilot series. Uh, I thought that we would start off by telling you a little bit about myself and how I ended up here hosting the show. And of course, I, I tell you a little bit about the show, uh, what you can expect from taking the time to listen to us every week, but most importantly, how the show is going to enhance your knowledge and understanding about a phenomenon that is literally changing the world. So, First, a little bit about myself and how I got here. I started off my career out of college training to be a bond broker with a company on Wall Street called McLaughlin Piven and Volga. And they put me through this pretty intense training program that I was not really too excited about at the time. I wanted to work the institutional desk that they had, and, and, and they had me working the consumer side of the house. So I was young, I got a little frustrated. And I became a little disenfranchised and impatient, as a lot of young people do. I eventually quit to become a police officer in a small town in North Jersey. So don't ask me what I was thinking. I mean, from a Wall Street broker to a local law enforcement officer, not exactly the normal career path that you see people take. So for the next eight and a half years, I worked as a police officer, working street crimes, um, doing drug investigations, sometimes chasing violent criminals, working some gang intervention stuff. Uh, I did a lot of traffic work. I did a lot of work building programs for our youth, keeping them busy, doing productive things and keeping them away from drugs. And after a while, I decided I wanted to do something different. And I applied for what is, in my estimation, the most prestigious law enforcement agency in the world, the United States Secret Service. So after about a 12-month lengthy and grueling process, I was offered a job with the Secret Service Newark Field Office. I felt very lucky to be accepted there. I was very, very lucky. I loved the Secret Service. My academy classmates were some of the most talented, classiest, most courageous people I ever met. And simply put, they were just the highest caliber of people that I ever had the privilege to associate myself with. And they raised my game significantly. And they literally changed my life. And I will always be grateful for the friendships I made there. And many of those people are cybersecurity warriors today, both in the public and private sectors. And I hope to have them all on the show. So it's going to be pretty exciting. Being selected to become one of the only 2,800 or so agents in the world at the time, to have the privilege of protecting the office of the presidency for the greatest republic and democracy that ever existed, pretty much changed my life for sure. I, I was very serious about my success because I truly felt that my success mattered. It meant something. And I lived with a sense of urgency and I lived with a sense of purpose. And I felt that what I did made a difference in people's lives. And that is something we're going to revisit here on this show often when we talk about cybersecurity. 
So when I was not assigned to protection assignments, I spent the better part of my time with the Secret Service and the next 17 years for that matter, working in the cybersecurity space. And I was involved in some of the most highly publicized events in the cybersecurity world. I was meeting amazing people, I was building amazing relationships, and I was learning all the time. I was like a sponge. I, I took in everything that was going on around me and recognizing that I was living through some of the most exceptional and some of the most amazing and dangerous times in human history. But when it came specifically to cybersecurity, I was in the right place at the right time and I recognized that and I tried to take advantage of it. So I was able to team up with some very talented agents while at the same time I was having some open-minded bosses who were willing to ask for and fight for changes in the culture to get more consistency and continuity around our investigative efforts. I mean, these trailblazers, if you will, paved the way for us to work high-profile, high-impact cyber-criminal investigations against cyber-targets that were unknown entities operating in a world that was little understood with little or no case law to support us or define how we could operate. I mean, there was no playbook on how to engage this new type of criminal. The bad guys had the upper hand all the time. And they were, and still remain today, very formidable adversaries, and they are to be taken very seriously. So in a great sense, we had to be risk takers because there was no established case law for certain cyber scenarios that would provide us the assured confidence that we typically have in traditional investigations, that we would win any legal challenges to our operational methods of obtaining the information and intelligence we needed. No, no one had done this before. I mean, no one. And so I'm not being pretentious when I said it's just kind of the reality of it. We were entering uncharted waters. So we were modernizing the investigative and intelligence gathering templates to do battle with a new adversary, one we didn't understand, and one who we really couldn't quantify. It was new teams of good and evil meeting for the first time in a new coliseum. So case in point, while working a case which turned out to be arguably the largest and most prolific criminal investigation in the history of the Secret Service, we wiretapped the upper echelon and senior leadership of a cyber organized crime group called Shadow Crew. So employing the first wiretap on an internet-facing computer network in United States history could probably easily be the subject of several episodes of this show, something that we're not going to get into great detail today, of course. But these experiences not only shaped my career, but the way I thought about everything around me. I was always learning. I was always learning to be agile. I was being able to pivot all the time. Deploying the important tactical lessons of the past and combining them with the new investigative techniques using the same emerging technologies on the market that the bad guys were also using to advance their criminal enterprises. Masking their identities, augmenting their collaboration, and maximizing their illegal profits, much of which, by the way, are all used to fund anti-American interests, another subject for a future episode of the show. So eventually, we ended up making some really major arrests. We arrested about a dozen and a half people or so, serving warrants all around the world, and we brought down a multi-million dollar criminal enterprise. And in some estimates, had the fraud prevention number at a billion dollars to the United States economy. The case was solid. Everyone pled guilty, and the organization was summarily dismantled. So our financial critical infrastructure was more secure because of what we did, and America was safer because of it. So this was a very interesting time for me. 
for sure, and I learned a lot during this period. So I left the Secret Service right after that, being recruited into the finance sector, and I accepted an offer to work for J.P. Morgan Chase, where I spent the next eight and a half years. And I primarily worked in cybersecurity, but I did have some other security and compliance responsibilities as well. So at JPMC, I thought we were very successful. We created the first cyber intelligence team in finance that I knew of, as well as the first sort of quote-unquote cybersecurity team, which was just combining some traditional information security teams with some new operational teams like the cyber intelligence function I previously mentioned to create a new model with new processes, with talent, intelligence, time, speed, and agility being the key elements of our organizational construct, our mission, and our success. So corporate life is a very different culture. Life and death decisions are not commonplace in the private sector, at least in the tactical way that they were in the organizations that I had previously worked for. But my former experiences ended up being very helpful in creating and employing and leading cybersecurity teams. And so in my estimation, critical decision-making skills are imperative to being successful in the cybersecurity space. In addition, like I also loved the ability to be creative and innovative. I mean, Fortune 500 companies are not startups. I get it. But they were not the government either. And I mean, I really felt the handcuffs had come off and it was time to discover the realm of the possible for me. I mean, how far could I go? Was it possible to reach my maximum potential? A very important question we'll be revisiting at a later date. But most importantly, I discovered something about cybersecurity and critical infrastructure that I loved about my old job at the Secret Service. What we do in the private sector means something. It's important. It's critical to our nation's economic prosperity. It's critical to our defense. And it's even critical to our survival. It helps secure the technologies that enhance people's lives and technologies that prolong life and provide critical services and, in general, enhance the quality of life for Americans and many other free people around the globe. So this show is not just about cybersecurity. It's about how it affects your daily life and the quality of life you enjoy because of it. The successes and failures of cybersecurity experts touch us all, most times in ways we don't even think about unless we see it in big breach headlines on CNN or in the papers or something. Outside of these highly publicized events, I think many people take our security for granted. Even though the cyber threats we face each and every day are some of the greatest, and in some cases, the greatest threat that we face as a sovereign nation. So in summary, this show is going to be about everything and anything cybersecurity. It's going to be for the seasoned cybersecurity professional as well as the general public who are cybersecurity novices but hope to learn more about the daily battle going on in cyberspace. So I hope to cover all the verticals in the cybersecurity domain. And we're going to talk about new systems that detect anomalous behavior to combat the insider threat. We're going to explore what type of tangential interactions companies have with third parties that introduce risk into our environments. I want to talk about what type of telemetry cyber teams need to measure the efficacy of their programs. We're going to explain the threat actor taxonomy and how we define and begin to collect intelligence on these actors, as well as explore how firms define their own attacks 
surface and profiles. And we're going to examine the attack vectors and topologies that our adversaries employ every day, as well as the collaboration that seems to be taking place more and more every day between nation states and cyber organized crime groups. We're going to take a look at cryptocurrencies, quantum computing, configurable biometric authentication, and cybersecurity and incident response ecosystems, as well as the enterprise strategies we need to deploy to strengthen our defense and death postures. And of course, we're going to be taking a look at many of the emerging threats in cloud, mobile, the Internet of Things, big data, and artificial intelligence, things that keep the professionals up at night. So the goal is to have a thought-provoking dialogue that spurs different opinions, brings issues to light that have not been brought to the public domain, and most of all, to spur action, to reach a point of critical mass with public opinion that forces positive, productive action that mitigates cybersecurity threats and makes us safer and makes the lives of our children safer and secures our futures. Because believe me, folks, that's what's at stake here. So I reflect back on this movie called Zero Days. It's a documentary made about the proliferation of cyber attacks by nation states, primarily focusing on the covert black ops cyber attack that happened at the Iranian nuclear facility at Natanz. And it's a great movie. It's a great documentary. And if you haven't seen it, I highly suggest you take a look at it. I think you'll find it enjoyable. The movie starts out with a man sitting in a room with his face obscured by dark shadows so he can't be identified and his voice was also altered and disguised as he began speaking. So the movie starts out with him speaking and saying this, through the darkness of the pathways that we march, evil and good live side by side, and this is the nature of life. We are in an unbalanced, an unequivalent confrontation between democracies that are obliged to play by the rules and entities who think that democracies are a joke. You can't convince fanatics by saying, hey, hatred paralyzes you. Love releases you. There are different rules that we have to play by. So I found this very thought-provoking, and it was a very eye-opening statement. I mean, these are the opening lines of the most popular cybersecurity documentary of our time. And this is exactly what we're going to be exploring here on Task Force 7 Radio, the battle between good and evil in the dark pathways of cyberspace. We're going to be heading towards our first break. When we come back, we'll speak to our first guest, former Secretary of Homeland Security, the Honorable Michael Chertoff. We'll be talking about nation-state attacks and what we need to do to protect ourselves. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, 
You'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back from the break, everyone. I'd like to introduce our first guest on our pilot show of Task Force 7 Radio former Secretary of Homeland Security and current co-founder and executive chairman of his own company, the Chertoff Group, the Honorable Michael Chertoff. Welcome to the show, Mr. Secretary. Good to be on, George. Great, great. It's an absolute honor to have you with us. We're going to be talking about cyber warfare and nation-state attacks today, some very serious stuff. I know you know a lot about this subject. Cyberspace is quickly becoming the fifth dimension of warfare for militaries all over all around the world. And a nation's cyber capability, both in the defensive and offensive realm, seems to be coming imperative to their own survival. So I know that last year, NATO officially recognized cyberspace as a domain of operation and could respond with conventional weapons in the event of a significant or powerful cyber attack against one of the NATO member states, meaning that it would invoke Article 5 and then there could be you know, a war, basically. It could basically uh, justify a response from the entire alliance. So, and of course, more recently, on August 18th, President Trump issued a directive to elevate the United States Cyber Command, that's currently a division of the NSA, to the status of a unified military command. So, my question to you, sir, is, are we engaged in a cyber war right now with other nation states? I know when, when you say that, people get really wound up. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't say we're engaged in a cyber war now, but I think that we are seriously thinking about building the capability and the doctrine that we need in case there were a cyber war. And, of course, the threshold question is what constitutes an active war. I mean, at one level, you know, criminal activity, theft of personal information, uh, things like that, as bad as they are, don't constitute warfare. At the other extreme, it's obvious that if you actually blew up uh, critical infrastructure and killed people, that would be warfare. And then the kind of middle position, which I think people are still debating, is how do you deal with what they call hybrid warfare or information operations, where there's an effort made to disrupt or create uncertainty about um, what's going on in a situation as a way of debilitating your adversary. It's not actually causing a loss of life or damage to property, but it can have a real impact on the faith people have in institutions and their willingness uh, to take action based on the information that they're given in the news. So, I mean, that's kind of a, a more ambiguous uh, type of warfare that probably doesn't warrant physical violence, 
but does require a vigorous response at a certain level. Right, right. So in, in your mind, what, what really crosses the line in a cyber attack? I know when I have these conversations and, and these public and private partnerships and, and we sit down and, and we talk about, you know, what uh, what crosses the line when the government says, okay, we're going to take retaliatory action here, maybe not only in the cyberspace, but also in the kinetic world, maybe the physical world. Is it is it the loss of life that actually, you know, obviously is, the, is where it draws the line to get a military response? I'm not sure there's a clear line. <clears throat> I think I can tell you that, you know, one case which would be the actual loss of life or very serious property or economic damage, you know, probably would be treated as similar to a physical attack and would warrant the full array of responses. Um, a nuisance, um, maybe debilitating something for a period of time, might not reach the level of warranting a physical response, but could re- uh, warrant a response, for example, like economic sanctions or um, some kind of criminal prosecution, or some kind of retaliation in kind. So, for example, in the last couple of Christmases, you had a situation in the Ukraine where the uh, utilities were affected by cyber attacks, and for a period of time, uh, several hundred thousand people were without power. Now, nobody, to my knowledge, died because of that. It wasn't uh, an enormous impact. On the other hand, it was clearly aimed at communicating a geopolitical message. So you might not respond to that with a physical response, but you might consider, for example, some kind of economic response or some kind of criminal prosecution. Right, right. Some kind of coordinated response. I understand criminal prosecution, that that brings me to my, my next question. I know that you know there's been some exceptions in terms of our ability to bring charges against people involved in nation-state attacks. I know a couple of years ago, there was two Russian intelligence officials that were indicted for the attack on Yahoo. I think it compromised like 500 million accounts. Kurtz Maskin, uh, Madsen, excuse me, the assistant general counsel of Yahoo uh, at the time said that the indictment unequivocally shows that the attacks on Yahoo were state-sponsored. I think that was the first time the United States government actually issued criminal charges against Russian officials for cyber attacks against U.S. companies. And there's been a a bunch of indictments and in, 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 well, there's at least one arrest of, of Chinese nationals, uh, you know, charged with hacking United States companies. What, what, what do we do to, to handle this? How do, how do we deal with nation-state hackers? In this sense, it's just so difficult. Well, we did uh, a couple of years ago. We did indict a couple, I think, three PLA Chinese Army members for hacking and stealing information, uh, intellectual property. Now, I don't think anybody believed they were going to see the inside of a courtroom, but it did send a message. It it embarrassed the Chinese government. There's a view that that's one of the reasons that President Xi signed an agreement with President Obama, acknowledging that it's inappropriate to use cyber espionage to benefit commercial enterprises, which is what happened in that particular case. Now, I'm not naive enough to say that the Chinese simply stopped doing that, but they dialed it back, apparently, and some of the more um, open and flagrant uh, efforts to steal commercial property were, were, were kind of retracted. So there was value to that. Likewise, I don't think that the Russian agents are going to see the inside of an American courtroom, but I do think it sends a message um, which, A, is embarrassing to the Russians. Uh, it allows um, the public to be aware of the fact that there's actually proof that Russian intelligence agents are involved in this. So it, it, it's not a, a, um, 
a very powerful weapon, but it does have some value. Right. You know, I know from my experience as a, a Secret Service agent, it's almost impossible to arrest and apprehend nation state actors and a lot of times cyber organized crime members, because even if we determine attribution and can specifically identify an individual, it's very difficult to get to them with these uncooperative governments. But this presents enormous difficulties for us, even in our conversations. It sort of creates a, a wild, wild west atmosphere in cyberspace. It seems like the norm is now is to do as much as you can get away with. Right. So. But this, these attacks, they affect global geopolitics. I mean, aren't there sophisticated messages being sent between countries with each one of these cyber attacks? It's a serious game, isn't it? Well, I think it is serious. And I think we've seen with a lot of the discussion lately about uh, the possibility of people hacking into uh, voting databases um, that nation states could actually do some very seriously disruptive things. Now, you know, part of the solution is we've got to take the steps necessary to protect and defend our databases. And, you know, there's legislation pending in Congress now that would actually help the states do that. So th there are things we can do defensively that are very, very important to put into place. I do think there are things we can do also from a deterrent standpoint. Uh, you know, when we, when we do pursue sanctions, they have an effect. And when we name particular individuals and we say, you know, your ability to move assets overseas or to travel overseas is going to be impaired because we're going to put a warrant out for your arrest or we're going to freeze your assets if we find them, that will have some kind of a, of a deterrent effect. And then, of course, you know, there's always the possibility if you take it up a step to actually do things that would interfere with the capabilities that they have to carry out these attacks. But, you know, much as the, in the early stage of the, of the kind of post-atomic bomb era, we're still feeling our way through really understanding how deterrence works in a geopolitical environment where you're dealing with cyberspace and, and where it's difficult often to prove, certainly, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, that a nation state is responsible for an attack. There's a lot of deniability. And so I think there's thinking going on now about issues like how do you attribute an attack to a nation state? What is the responsibility of a nation state when an attack is launched from its territory? And as we develop our policy and our doctrine here, I think we'll, we will then have a better set of tools to use to respond to these kinds of attacks. So, you know, when I think about the discussion that needs to happen and sort of the dialogue on what our response would be and, and, and under what circumstances, I think about how our defensive and offensive capabilities are, are sometimes overclassified by the United States government. And, and how are we supposed to begin to, in your mind, have the, have the internal conversations about getting agreements with other countries into place and what's acceptable behavior and what isn't and establishing those norms so that we can engage our, our partners first on that? What, what are your thoughts on the classification of some of the stuff and, and the open dialogue that has to occur? Well, you know, George, I agree with you. I think it's very difficult to have a discussion if we classify all the information about it. Now, one of the ways um, the intelligence community has essentially gotten around this is when you have private companies um, that publish reports and they're entitled to do it because it's not based on classified information, Right. And then that becomes something that can be referred to uh, and, and used in the discussion. But I would agree that I think that we perhaps overclassify and we lose sight of the fact 
that without disclosing what we know, not specific sources and methods, but generally, it gets very hard to get the American public on board to what we need to do, and even harder to get other countries to get on board. And the reality is we're going to have to generate some international pressure to create some norms that put off limits certain kinds of cyber attacks, just as we did in the physical world. In the physical world, you know, we have rules that you don't bomb hospitals or or you don't um, disproportionately affect infrastructure that can hurt innocent civilians. We need to have a, a comparable thing in cyberspace, but we can't do that if the discussion is so constrained because we can't really talk about what actually is going on. Right. So if, if for instance, the, the North Korean attack on Sony, if that was a you know, if that was a, 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 a company that was critical infrastructure, the response would have been different, you think, in your mind? I would think so. I mean, I think yeah. it's pretty clear that if it had been, you know, if it had resulted in serious impact on critical infrastructure, you know, injury to people, uh, serious economic damage, I mean, not just one company, but, but really um, something that would be regionally or nationally significant, there would have been a different response. And I think what you've seen with, for example, the indictment of the two Russians in the Yahoo breach <clears throat> is that there is now a greater willingness to lay out for the public when a nation state is involved in this. And I think that's a necessary um, predicate to starting to get in place the rules and the international law and the doctrine that would respond when you have a serious uh nation-state mounted attack. Right. So from a defensive standpoint, we talk a lot about the offense and the involvement of the government in, in, in protecting. We'll actually get back to that again. But from a defensive standpoint, I mean, how do we address the threat that cyber warfare and, and, and organized crime and other uh, threats, cyber threats of that kind, have on our critical infrastructure? I mean, what are, where are we falling short, not only from a government standpoint, but from you know, the private sector? Well, most of the infrastructure is in the private sector hands. So most of the ability, excuse me, to respond and to harden and reduce our vulnerabilities is going to be in the private sector. So the first thing is you have to understand you're not going to stop all attacks. It's not possible. But what you can really do is mitigate the damage and effectively respond and be resilient so that in the end the damage is limited or, or negligible. It's In many ways, the example I always use is the human body, which keeps out a lot of bacteria and viruses, but not everything, and that's why you have your immune system. It's designed to kill dangerous microbes when they enter your body before they can do a lot of damage. So we need to have a realistic understanding of what we can do. There are some things we can do at the perimeter, to harden ourselves, but a lot of things are going to get through. And so part of what we need to do is monitor what's going on in our networks and build an architecture that separates um, the most critical uh, assets and data so that it gets a higher level of protection. Use um, robust requirements for identification to control access to the most sensitive data. Um, Have an ability in real time to look for anomalies on the network that suggest that someone is doing something dangerous in the network. And maybe most important, we've got to train people 
not to make mistakes like clicking on things that invite malware into the network. So there are a whole series of measures, I call them the Ten Commandments, that you can put in place that will significantly reduce, although it won't eliminate, the possibility of a really negative um, cyber consequence from an attack. Right, right. Okay, so I think about right now we're bumping up against a commercial break, so we're going to take some time to do that, and we'll be right back with more from our special guest, former Secretary of Homeland Security, the Honorable Michael Chertoff. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you currently or aspire to serve on a board or work in a leadership capacity for or with a public or nonprofit organization, where can you turn to get the best advice and practices? How about Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar? Our program discusses challenges facing both public and nonprofit leaders. Don't miss these practical solutions and tips to enhance your leadership style and effectiveness. Leadership Matters airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity, and we're going to continue our conversation with former Secretary of Homeland Security and Chairman of the Chertoff Group, the Honorable Michael Chertoff. So, Mr. Secretary, we were talking about, uh, from, from a defensive standpoint, what we need to do to improve our defense and death posture. And there's been a lot of debate through various think tanks, uh, the ISACs, uh, FISIC, uh, the industry groups through public and private uh, partnerships and organizations that I belong to, uh, what the role of government is in protecting private sector networks, like the one that runs our Fortune 500 companies. So when I think about this, I used to be a police officer, and if you worked the midnight shift or the late afternoon shift at 10, 11 o'clock at night, you'd be rolling down the street, and I'd have all the, the lights on in the cruiser, and I'd be able to light up the bushes and have all the cars to see who was in the cars, and there'd be an elderly person maybe sitting on a, a porch, 
you know, I had the windows open to be a hot summer night and I could see them and they'd, you know, be having a nightcap or something. And I know that they'd wave to us and they'd feel really good about the fact that the government was out there protecting them, that they could sit on their front porch. They felt protected, right? They're paying their taxes. Where's the drive by in cyberspace? How do we do that? I mean, it's so complicated. How do we, how do we accomplish that? And what's the role of the government there? Well, what's complicated is this. If you wanted to have the government do a drive-by, as you described, in cyberspace, essentially the government would have to live on all of your networks. And putting aside whether that's even possible without an incredible expenditure of money and effort, I'm not sure how many institutions and individuals would like to know the government is monitoring everything that is going on, you know, on their network all the time. I mean, that would sound a little bit like Big Brother. Right. So the government's role is we have it in a free society, in at least when you're dealing with you know private sector and private enterprise, is to enable the private sector, <clears throat> share information, um, give best practices, um, give warning if there's a sign of something coming. But in the end, the responsibility to actually live on the network and monitor it and take steps to react is going to be with the owner of the network in the private sector. Now, the government will, through, for example, the, the uh, computer emergency response teams, if they're invited in, the government will come in and help in terms of forensics and remediation. But there has to be an invitation. And the government can't live on the networks all the time. So this is an area where you have to recognize the battlefield is in everybody's houses and offices, and the government's not big enough and and probably shouldn't be big enough to live in all of those locations. So it's got to be a shared responsibility. Right. Now, I know that a lot of the, the professionals that are listening right now are very familiar with that. And I, I think, but I think a lot of the public, the general public, some of our listeners actually wonder why the government doesn't protect our systems. And I, I think it's a, it's such a difficult situation. And, and I think it's good for us to talk about it so that our listeners understand. Sure. I, I, you know, and George, let me, let me say this, <clears throat> you know, I mean, ask your listeners this, uh, would you like to have the policeman sitting in your living room 24 seven? <laughs> or in your bedroom, because that way you'd be perfectly safe, but you would lose your privacy. And I think that's, that's right. part of what we're talking about here. That's a good analogy. That's a good analogy. So is the, it, it, having said that, is the private sector doing a good job of, of protecting our critical infrastructure and the networks in our Fortune 500 companies? Are we doing that? I think it varies. Um, I think if you go to the financial sector and, for example, the major um, power companies and utilities. They actually do quite a good job. It's not perfect, but they devote a lot of resources. There's a lot of information sharing, and they're continually looking to upgrade their capabilities. Some of the other companies um, don't do quite as well. Some of them, frankly, are too small or they're medium-sized, and they don't have the resources and capabilities on their own to protect themselves. There are companies that don't realize that they're targets, um, or they don't want to invest enough, or they don't know how to invest. So we have an uneven playing field. You know, there was the recent uh, hack into Equifax with a, over, I think, 100 million accounts hacked. And you would think a financial company like that would recognize that the financial data of you know, 100 million plus Americans is a valuable target for criminals. But evidently, for whatever reason, they weren't able to protect it. So, you know, this is not a zero-sum game where you're either perfect or you have nothing, but we've got to work to help everybody upgrade their capabilities 
and their plans because the weakest link creates a problem for everybody. Right. So when I think about Equifax, there's about 143 million customers involved. Uh, that's the information. That's about half the population of the United States. About 209,000 credit cards and approximately 182,000 con- consumer dispute documents. That's all, And that's very personal stuff, right? I mean, that's really personal information when I think about that. So I think right now the New York Post is actually reported that that it's because of the struts vulnerability. Now, we know that the struts vulnerability has been around for a while, and there's been some patches that have been put out for that. And one could assume, just assume, that maybe this wasn't patched, this application wasn't patched appropriately, and the vulnerability was taken advantage of by people who were made aware of the vulnerability by the the company themselves. So what are your thoughts on, you know, those type of, uh, you know, vulnerabilities and, and, and how, how diligent we have to be? What, what, what do we have to do differently to get the message across? I mean, I definitely don't want to be critical of anyone because everyone's going to have a bad day, right? I, yeah, that's I, my I, opinion, I, right? I don't I'm know, not, you know, particulars of what happened with Equifax, but I know, for example, <clears throat> with the WannaCry ransomware, which affected the National Health Service in Britain and shut down a lot of their data, um, it affected um, companies all over the world that had their data damaged or shut down. Uh, there was a vulnerability, but a month before this particular piece of malware um, started to infect people, there had been a patch that had been put out by Microsoft. And the co- companies that in, uh, uh, implemented the patch didn't have a problem, and the ones that didn't did have a problem. Now, why is that? Well, part of it is that some people just ignore the need to patch or update their operating systems. Some of it is, frankly, that there are are enterprises or people who are using operating systems that are out of date, and they're not supported anymore. And and for whatever reason, they haven't moved to a more uh, contemporary operating system, and so they're not going to be able to patch. Worse yet... You have people who, for example, use pirated software. They've stolen it, so they don't get supported. They don't get patches, and that becomes a weakness not only for themselves, but their computers can become zombies, essentially, used to attack third parties. And now we're getting into the so-called Internet of Things, which are so you know things like quote smart thermostats, smart refrigerators, um, smart appliances that are really all connected up through the internet, wirelessly or or wireline, and many of those don't have any provision for updating or patching. So they become basically attractive targets for malware. And once the malware infects part of the network, it spreads around. So I do think, you know, this is is not cutting-edge security. This is basic blocking and tackling, updating your operating system, Patching when a new patch becomes available, that reduces, doesn't eliminate the problem, but it reduces the problem significantly. And that's pretty simple stuff to do. So, I mean, we really have to educate people. And in the case of the so-called smart devices, we've got to insist that the manufacturers build into those devices a capability to update and to patch. So we got to get the ground balls, essentially. We have to, right? And so when you talk about the Internet of Things, there's a lot of talk about this emerging 
you know, technology and also the emerging risk that that technology presents. Is it is it that much more serious, the, the Internet of Things, than, than the risk that already exists? I mean, is IoT uh, really introducing that much more risk into the environment where we should be sort of sounding the alarm and really focusing on, you know, what that means? I think the Internet of Things is introducing a lot more risk because the surface area in in which an attack can take place is dramatically expanded. You know, if you have one device connected to the Internet and you protect that, that's pretty straightforward. If everything in your house is connected, thermostats, refrigerators, it's all connected to the network, you have to protect each of those devices because any one of them can become the attack pathway. And I know of a, a major institution in Washington that had a serious attack several years ago through a thermostat that was remotely connected to their network. And although their main network was well protected, there, that was a gap. And through that gap, a foreign entity was able to get into the network. So we have to recognize that as you expand the surface area by connecting everything wirelessly, you're creating a greater burden to protect all of that surface area. So when people talk about cybersecurity, there's a lot of people out there that think that if you just implement a certain technology, you have a magic button, you push it, and then you know you solve all your problems. I mean, is cybersecurity about technology alone? We're talking about process here. We're talking about strategy. I mean, what is what kind of architectural strategy should companies be thinking about? What what should be their strategy, and how long should their strategy be for? George, you're exactly right. I mean, and this, the technology is an enabler, but it is not a solution. There's no magic thing you can buy that solves your problem. It starts out with having a strategy where you understand what are your key assets, what is going to be attractive to a, a, a target actor, someone who wants to carry out a criminal offense or maybe a nation state. What is most important to you that you need to protect? What is your business and how accessible do parts of your network have to be to outsiders? How do you deal with your suppliers? How do you deal with your contractors? Only when you understand that and you make decisions about who gets to do what, who has the privileges to be an administrator, who gets access, um, and what kind of monitoring you're doing, only when you've made those fundamental governance and policy decisions can you then decide what is the right technology to implement it. But the example I sometimes use from a prior experience is someone builds a wall and they put cameras and they, they go, look, I built a wall around my enterprise. I've got cameras. What a great security situation. And the question I ask this person is, okay, a wall is good. It'll s slow somebody up and you'll have a camera that'll show that someone's coming over the wall. What are you going to do when they come over the wall? And the person looked at me and said, oh, we didn't think about that. I said, well, you know, the wall is useless unless it's part of a plan about what you're going to do when someone comes over the wall. And the point here is that the technology helps you implement what your strategy is, but it doesn't substitute for your strategy. You need to think through in terms of what's important to your enterprise and what the real threats are, how you configure yourself to protect your key assets, and then the technology is the way you actually put that into effect. 
So we have a few minutes left. I want to get your opinion on, on, on something. And beyond regulation, how do we get more CEOs down the Fortune 500 trough to understand the cyber threats they face and to take the necessary steps to ensure that they have adequate defense and depth postures to defend their private networks? I mean, what do we do? How do we educate them and get them to understand uh, the, the criticality of this? So I think the good news is um, <clears throat> more and more boards of directors and CEOs and senior officials do understand it's important. I think the challenge, though, is to make them feel empowered to deal with the problem. And all too often, people who come to talk to boards about cyber threats you know, are, are full of technical jargon and, uh, you know, all kinds of different solutions that, you know, address a particular part of the problem. And for the individual who's not spending all their time doing cybersecurity, they kind of throw their hands up like, well, I could bankrupt myself buying everything, and I don't know if it's going to work. So to me, this is about translating into something that's understandable to the average person what you need to do. And the first thing, as I said, um, I've said previously, is you got to have clear expectations. Do not go to somebody and say, we're going to fix this so you never have a problem. Any more than the doctor says, take this pill, you'll never get sick for the rest of your life. That would be bogus. You have to explain that what we're about here is dealing with the risk at multiple levels, multiple things we can do that will ultimately reduce, although not totally eliminate the risk. And then you also have to have a plan to respond if something bad does happen so you can minimize what the ultimate consequences are. I think if you give people a sense in plain language about what's achievable and what you're trying to do, because in the end you're dealing with the bad actors are human beings too. Um, if you can lay out a strategy clearly, then I think you can get the support of the CEO and the board. Um, and then the technology becomes part of the solution, but it doesn't overwhelm people. So, Mr. Secretary, I think we're just about out of time. This went really fast. Thanks so much for coming on. This is a great way to open the show. My pleasure. It's always, great to, it's always great to speak with you, sir. I hope you come back on often. I look forward to seeing you at one of Bobby's events soon. Great. Thanks, George. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, that does it for the pilot episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Thanks for joining us, and be sure to tune in next week for some more blunt cyber talk. Make sure you tell your friends about the show. And just a reminder, it's available for replay 24-7, 365 on Voice America Business Channel. That does it for today. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.